everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Nicole Kyle, the Music and Worship Arts Director at High Point. In this episode, we're going to answer questions that we received from the Ask Me Anything time this past Sunday, July 5th. We've been doing an AMA time at the end of our Sunday services, and in this episode, I'm going to talk with our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, Nick Gibson about questions related to the sermon, which was about sanctification and holiness, but also unrelated questions to the sermon, like, to what extent are we idolizing safety in response to this pandemic? As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, you can email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Nicole Kyle. I work at High Point Church as the worship director. I'm here with Nick Gibson, who is our lead pastor. And um, we're going to go through some of the questions that we had left over from our AMA section, Ask Me Anything section at the end of the service, which was on Sunday, July 5th. So before we do that, Nick, could you try to do um, maybe a two-minute? I'll give you two minutes, um, just like uh, overarching summary or thesis uh, from the sermon you preached this morning. Yeah, I believe it's verse three in chapter four of First Thessalonians. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And so I basically preached on that being a fact mm-hmm. that God demands that we be sanctified, but it also means that for all the reasons that we must do it are also all the reasons why it's a great thing and it's beautiful and it's what we were made for and that we could live in God's will and we could serve him and like all the things that we would in theory at least desire and yeah. are all part of it. So it's mm-hmm. one of those things where like, it's like God demanding that we live and not die. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I demand that you yeah. live and not die. You're just like, well, great. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. So um, <laughs> getting people to think about sanctification and pursuing godliness that way. Yeah. Was was what I shot at this first one. And then I it, I was planning only on, on doing two parts, but I only did one. So the next part will yeah. be sexual morality as an example of the dynamic of sanctification. And then the third sermon will be on the, like, what, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. Which is actually not covered that much in this particular passage. So I may look at some of the later passages in First Thessalonians more. Um, also, I'm considering you doing this for the fall series is actually a a diachronic doctrine of sanctification as the fall series. Like what does it, what does it yeah. actually look like or mean to pursue holiness in the, according to the new Testament? Because I think that I can't think of any time in my life where I have seen a church or watched anybody do like a full, this is what it means to pursue mm-hmm. God in relationship to what, yeah. how God, God actually talks about. I, I've heard lots of stuff on hearing God's voice and all kinds of things that are not, they're not, they're not heretical. They're not, they're not even wrong, but they're, if you read the new Testament and you didn't know anything about the church, you would think those are peripheral. You would think this thing that called righteousness or these things called godliness or holiness were absolutely fundamental and central. And then mm-hmm. if somebody's like, what about hearing God's voice in your heart? You'd be like, I don't, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know? So I I think it'd be helpful to get us centered on that without necessarily rejecting other things. Yeah. I think um, when I was in college, it was definitely a question that my friends and I were like, what does sanctified mean? Like that we know that's God's will, but what does that mean? Because, you yeah. know, every college student is very obsessed with understanding God's will. Not every college student, but, but it's, the ones it's who common are- because um, you're going to be making a lot of big decisions, exactly. right? Yeah. Yes. So, um, and then doing college ministry, it was, it was a common conversation. Right. 
um, as well. So I think that there are a lot of people. I mean, we got a lot of questions too about yeah. this. I got to do so, my little, the difference between God's secret will and his revealed will riff today. I Yes, yeah. I know. I was really happy about I, that. Uh, if, I, people are going to get sick of that because I almost feel like you cannot tell people that too much. Yeah. Well, it's okay though, because I was thinking about this related to something else. The Is it the Rick Warren quote yeah. that we've talked about before? Oh, that like, yeah. Sh- it's not Rick Warren. It's But go ahead and say it and then I'll come up with the author. Yeah. But just this idea that we we need to hear the same thing over and over again until we actually understand it and master it. And so in our in our churches it makes sense if we're if we feel like we're hearing the same thing preached because we don't actually understand it yet yeah you probably better it's probably better for you to think that way yeah no it's larry osborne he talks about it in okay the key church okay larry osborne yeah so anyway um just as an aside maybe we'll try to put this in the notes but there we've done an episode well, sticky on tea, sorry, sticky church We've done an episode on the revealed will versus hidden will mm-hmm. in this podcast before. So if that, Show if notes. you want more of an in-depth look at that, we'll try to link because I don't know what episode that number that is. Myself I have not me. memorized them. So yeah. all, all right. right. So here we go. I'm ready for questions. Awesome. So here's the first one. Doesn't the Bible teach that a Christian is considered holy and blameless by God upon accepting Christ as Lord? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so theologians have distinguished between standing, what's what your standing is, and what's operative. So, um, I mean, once it's just think about it this way: uh, would you would you want to marry someone who you are able to fully and completely forgive of all their sins, past, present, and future, and then they stayed exactly the same kind of person throughout your entire marriage as when you accepted them, mm-hmm. right? And the answer is, right. well, no. And right. that would really be redemptive because they would still be the same degraded person, right? And so if you if you had the ability to be part of their transformation, you that's part of being loving. You would want that. Yeah. And ultimately, you would want them to become fully the new person they could be, right? And so in Christian theology, we call that justification, being forgiven of everything and, and given a completely new standing. And mm-hmm. then we want the thing that we've been declared. So sometimes people say this this way, Christians are called to a lifestyle of becoming what they were declared, Mm-hmm. Right, so then we're declared just, right, and we we have that standing, but we need to be that com- become that kind of creature, right? That's sanctification, being right. actually transformed into the image of Christ again. And then thirdly is what we call glorification, which is the achievement of that. Yeah, right, with again the help of God. But all three of those are supernatural things, and they're all yeah. done in Christ by the power of His Spirit under the providence of God the Father, and are ultimately realized in our final salvation. But if but if you think of salvation without one of those three things being operative in it, then you do not believe in the New Testament doctrine of salvation. Mm-hmm. You might still be saved, but you also could be easily led astray because because yeah. without the without glorification, your hope will break down. Without sanctification, mm-hmm. love will break down, and without a proper understanding of justification, faith will break down. And faith, hope, and yeah. love are meant to work together. Right, and so. Faith is receiving justification. Love is recognizing how the will of God and loving others is to be operative through faith. And hope is this sustaining capacity to face everything and to persevere. And so those three have to work together. Faith, hope, and love remain, right? But re- remember, the greatest of these is love. Like like actually becoming holy is in some sense greater. I mean, this is hard for people yeah. to, to, to conceive because we've worked so hard to get justification clear. The biggest issue with justification is that it be clear. Because you have to access it. So it has to be clear. But it's mm-hmm. easy that when we you spend so much time emphasizing it to make it clear, 
you can make the mistake of emphasizing that like that's the thing. It's not. Holiness right. is the thing. The gift of holiness is the great thing. Yeah. Right? Not just declaration, but to, for it to be operative, to be to be like Christ. All the statements of being in Christ and being like Christ. Well, in Christ is positional. Like Christ is operative. And both of those have to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? And but obviously you can't achieve becoming like Christ unless you're in Christ. That's the biblical claim. That, therefore, justification yeah. must precede sanctification, right? Because it's the work of the spirit that sanctifies. But but the two are not exclusive of each other right yeah it's a whole very holistic being um i'm (laughs) i heard everything that you said and i wasn't not paying attention but i'm a little bit stuck back (laughs) at like the first thing you said because i don't know that i have heard someone talk before about the relationship between faith hope and love and each of those and their relationship to Justification, oh, yeah. sanctification, yeah. And glorification. I, I, li- I literally made that up just now, but it. Se- it I feel but like it's that really- works, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was very helpful because, right? I mean, like to to come back and to press in on each of those a little bit, especially glorification and hope and the relationship right. between those. That's really important. The ho- it literally says in the Bible, the hope of glory. Right. right. Like our big hope is glorification, which is. A the freedom from sin and and your in your the the so glorification includes the confirmation of your justification, right? Your faith wasn't a sham. You weren't deluded. Jesus did save you. You were saved all along. Yeah. You were justified. Now you absolutely know for sure, right? Sanctification, like you're free from the power of sin, finally, mm-hmm. right? You're you are going to be holy forever, right? And yeah. that you no longer see you are. Like you, like right. it's there. Like you've, it's happened. Right. The thing you've hoped for is. Yes. And, yeah. It's well, if you, if you don't have, if you don't have that hope, then when you are in the middle of, cause you, even in our, I think it was during the AMA section today, you were talking about how there can be times in our life where we just are like, am I really doing the, the Christian thing? Like, is this all mm-hmm. real where we have these questions of our assurance oh, yeah. or let's say I'm, we have well, a particular. I'm, listen, I'm a pastor of High Point and I'm literally going through one of those seasons right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very real and it feels very visceral and very like it can feel defeating and the hope of glory can be a grounding thing for us in that okay I'm going to believe that one day that will be coming mm-hmm. the, yeah so that my mind is a little bit like wait that's too fast don't move on from that so quickly because that's yeah. it's really clarifying and really helpful yeah the there good news a- is, is not only can you speed up the podcast but you can rewind <laughs> it and you can slow it down <laughs> Okay, but I'm not listening to the podcast. I'm I know. having a conversation. So, yeah. but yeah, I, d- I don't want to pass by that too fast because that was really yeah. helpful. Yeah, listen, listen. It it feels pious to people who've grown up with an, an evangelical framework that the most important things for people to be saved. Therefore, they have to accept Jesus and receive salvation personally, which is true, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that salvation has multiple meanings in the Bible, which I think is maybe might be another question, but, but it has multiple meanings, right? Like it means ju- receiving justification and being declared s- self saved in Christ, which assures a final salvation, right? But salvation also refers to like glorification and like salvation refers to a number of different things. Right. And so, so but salvation includes both being delivered from the penalty of sin, that's justification, and then delivered from the slavery of sin, that's sanctification. Right, mm-hmm. and then delivered from the, being delivered from the do- domain of sin, mm-hmm. right, and and the presence of indwelling sin. Ultimately, right, yeah. And so all of those are salvations, yeah. Right, all leading towards each other. 
Yeah, this is, I feel like um, there are times where something, like I can remember being in high school and I had to study some, it was in a biology class and there was some system that like just for whatever reason didn't click and I had to keep studying it over and over again. And then all of a sudden there it was, it finally clicked Mm -hmm. and it all came together. And so I, I feel like these first 10 minutes are like, I want to just listen back to understand the the way these things function together and have a like my mind being opened in a better way because the other thing yeah. i thought of was when we we're when you were talking about sanctification and how we we think that the main thing is just our justification mm-hmm. what came to mind were all the psalms that talk about i will see the goodness of the lord in the land of the living that we we have this belief and hope that God isn't just going to save us someday in heaven, but that there is an abundant and full life that he has for us here on earth as well. And Jesus says that too. And that part of that whole process is the process of sanctification, of his church becoming more redeemed, more restored, more and more like Christ, more and more being set apart for this useful thing that he has made us for to do. That is part of experiencing the Lord's goodness in this life as well. Yes. Yeah. Albeit in the way of the cross now, but still, there's still a lot of glory in the way of the cross, like in the Mm -hmm. suffering and under the curse and all that's happening now, there's still an awful lot of glory to be experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Um, so you you kind of have touched on this already, but just to be sure that we're hitting this, the second question is sanctification, are sanctification and holiness like living a supernatural life in Christ? If you are progressing in sanctification, you are by definition living a supernatural life in Christ. The way scripture speaks about sanctification is that its operative power is the, is the Holy Spirit. And so... If it's operating, its operative power is the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like if a, mm-hmm. if a gas engine is running, right? If an internal yeah. combustion engine is running, there is gas in it, mm-hmm. right? And similarly, if a life is operating more and more in godliness or holiness, then the Holy Spirit is in it, mm-hmm. is the Christian belief. Now, obviously, from a secular perspective, people have all kinds of questions about that. Like, well, can't people get better without the Holy Spirit? All that kind of stuff. But but there, but the difference is is what Edwards would have called the difference between common grace, mm-hmm. right, and and real agape, like transformational, the transformational grace of God. And right. yes, people can get better in in what would be called common grace, but they will not be experiencing the life of Christ, re-expressing the image of God in the same way. That that is a that's not just a quantitative difference; it is a qualitative difference, according mm-hmm. to Christian faith. Yeah. Um. So this que- the next question is um, talking about salvation. And I-, I think that what you've already said about how there are different sorts of salvation or we talk about it in different ways and like the salvation mm-hmm. being spoken about as it relates to both justification and sanctification and glorification. I think that's going to answer this question, but I want to ask it anyway so you can speak to it more. Christians, are off- Christians often refer to the time when they accept Christ as the time they were saved, but we are also taught that he who perseveres until the end will be saved. How do we reconcile the two? Or is one of these not biblical? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, this gets back to the issue of salvation referring to different things. So, in, so I'm not saying that salvation can refer to anything. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is mm-hmm. that 
if you took all of the promises of God and amalgamated them all together into one big thing, that is salvation, capital S, the whole gamut. That is everything from God's foreknowledge in eternity past. It's all the, what Calvinists call the doctrines of grace. It's, for, it's from his foreknowledge in eternity past all the way through our, um, our eternal or everlasting experience of the new heavens and the new earth. It's everything. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. foundational to us ever entering into that, right, is receiving salvation, right, which is believing in Christ and being mm-hmm. experiencing the new birth. Because that is necessarily operative, like that has to happen for someone to be saved. We refer to that as salvation sometimes, like so-and-so got saved, right? But it's not just that they experienced justification, it's that they entered into the whole, right? That That's the entrance. So our assumption is not just that they were forgiven and that's it, and then they're going to die in the heat death of the universe, right? It's that they like, in being forgiven, they became a child of God. They received, right? And even people who focus very, very strongly on justification is almost the only thing they talk about still believe all those things. They'll talk about, well, you became a child of God and you have the spirit and blah, blah, blah. Right, 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 right. But sometimes people don't think of that as part of salvation. Like part of your salvation, like you receiving the spirit is just as big a part of your salvation as the fact that Jesus forgave your sins, mm-hmm. right? The fact that you're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, that you'll be raised from the dead. Like yeah. on, some, on some level, who cares if you're forgiven of your sins, if there's no final judgment and if you're not being raised from the dead, mm-hmm. right? Like part of it is the doom of the fact of eternal life, right? Mm-hmm. And because life is everlasting for image bearers, right? Freedom from sin in justification becomes all the more important, right? And also like, so so everything is received on the basis of justification. So sometimes we'll refer to as just that small part. In some ways, compared to the whole, it's a small part. But in other ways, because it's the entrance, it's the most important thing because nothing else happens without it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, your election is part of your salvation and you would have never been justified if God hadn't chosen you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like it, it can get kind of, but the, the fact is, is that the Bible uses the word salvation in all these different ways, that there is a whole that God refers to. And the necessary entry point is justification or believing in Christ and receiving salvation personally. And kind of what marks, quote, evangelicalism, right? Evangelicalism means being about the evangel or the gospel is um, the two main historical doctrines that that delineate someone as evangelical is one, that they believe in the full authority of the Bible. They believe the Bible is the word of God written. And two, they believe in the ne- that it's necessary for someone to be personally saved. That is to consciously accept Christ themselves to be saved. And um, other than that, those two things, they believe what a lot of other people believe. And obviously there's lots of Christians who believe in the first one and lots of Christians who believe in the second one. Um, but Christians tend to emphasize, evangelical Christians tend to emphasize the, the Bible is the word of God written. And therefore we, we respond to it with that level of authority in the gathered life of the church. And then secondly, that what we're trying to do is to make disciples, which begins with people individually being called to make a personal commitment of faith to Jesus and to belong to him entirely. And there's a lot of churches that you can go to that you just never, you never hear that. You never hear that. Look, look, you need to believe in Jesus yourself or that they're going out Mm -hmm. in the world and telling people, look, Jesus died for your sins. Like there is a savior for you that the sovereign God over all the earth demands that you come and believe in. And Mm -hmm. that work of what we call evangelism from which you get the word evangelical too, right? They come from the same root. I mean, um, it's fundamental who we are. So I, I think that, I think that sometimes people, because that's true about us, we tend to look at salvation through only that lens, lens of justification. By sure. Faith alone. But it's right. it's part of a much wider salvation. Yeah, that's helpful. 
And then some people um, talk about it too widely. Like salvation is about yeah. redeeming creation and therefore creation care and environmentalism, which is like true. Like it's, it's like true kind of like, it is mm-hmm. true that if you worked out all the implications of salvation and how that should be operating in our lives now and what that would naturally produce and how we behaved and what that would mean in our interaction socially and therefore environmentally, that it ought to have a beneficial effect on the environment rather than a detrimental one. Yes, absolutely. But yeah. it's not part of salvation in any biblical sense. Like there's no point in the Bible that literally says, you know what, I'm going to redeem the environment. And that's not really true. The, the world is going to be recreated. That doesn't mean we can crash simplest- it, but- is this too simplistic of a way of thinking about it? That there is there is much that is um, entailed in what it means to be a Christian, which requires our salvation first, right. and that that will change the way that we live our life. But that doesn't mean that all of those things are a part of salvation. Is that too simplistic? I guess it depends on who you're talking to. Like, well, I think yeah, I think it's correct. I mean, I think it's correct to yeah. say that there are many things that Christians. We'll say that it's just a, like, you know, a lot of this ends up being political in the, at the yeah. end, but it, it is true. Like when a Christian says, you know, the gospel should, should the gospel quote does this. Mm-hmm. Well, in the sense that as the gospel changes people, they tend to be more given to that and they tend to be like, Hey, we should do that. That's part of acting yeah. justly and acting well. That's true. It, it's true. But if yeah. you say, okay, what does the new Testament actually refer to as part of salvation? Right? That's yeah. another question. And the answer is more yeah. than justification, right? Glorification yeah. and sanctification, probably 20 or 30 things. The New Testament explicitly says is fundamentally part of the promises of God in salvation, mm-hmm. right? That's the broader biblical picture of salvation. Now, can you broaden it out even more? Well, yeah, you can. You can broaden it out all the way further than that. What will happen if a people lived this way? What yeah. kind of flourishing would they produce? And yeah. the answer is, well, an amazing kind. Mm-hmm. And so and then now you can say any good is part of salvation. Sure. Which yeah. in some ways waters something down by broadening it out too much. But at the same time, it is true that foster care would go better and that the environment would be better taken care of. And like wilderness trails would be better maintained. And I mean, like there's all kinds of things that like could be the impact of yeah. changed people, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move to the next question, which is about um, it's about, Verse four from chapter four. So I'm going to read that first. Um, Verse four, it starts in the middle of a sentence, but that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. The person asking this question writes in four, four, the footnotes state, learn to live with his own wife or learn to acquire a wife, which is a very different meaning than learn to control his own body. Mm -hmm. Textually and in textual criticism, how are these three allowable by the text? So the so okay so thankfully it's not this is not a text critical issue so a text text criticism would refer to if you looked at all the Greek manuscripts and in some it said um, control his own wife right mm-hmm. and in another one it said his own body and another one it said his own something else right mm-hmm. that's not what we see so there's there's no textual variant here we know exactly what the original Greek is now the original Greek word here is the generic Greek word for vessel so like cup. Or like mm-hmm. something you would carry something in, right? Okay. And so so it says each person should learn to control his own vessel. Now you could take that um, and there's a few situations in which there is an oblique reference to a wife being a vessel. For example, in First Peter, it says, be, you know, be kind to your wife. Don't treat her harshly, but treat her with honor as the weaker vessel. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so some people have said, because vessel is used towards a wife there, that that's how we should take this. Hmm. That a person should learn to acquire. But the, but the word isn't so much acquire as to take mastery over. Mm-hmm. Right. And that doesn't seem to be the concept here of sexual immorality. Right. Because if you read the text carefully, because if it, if it meant a man should learn to take control of his own vessel and vessel here is wife. That is, a man should control his wife. And that's relative to sexual morality. Right. So that means either two things. Either one, a man should learn to force himself on his wife sexually. And it would be a biblical injunction to essentially what we would call spousal rape. Or mm-hmm. it would be control your wife and don't let her fall into sexual immorality by controlling her. That is a biblical injunction to, I don't know, structural jealousy or something like that. Right. Sure. But the thing is, is, when you read the passage carefully, the one of the interesting points, and we'll talk about this next week, is that the responsibility for sexual morality here is put squarely on men. That's what this passage means. Hmm. Um, and, and it means that in a couple of different ways, right? And so it, it ex- ex- explicitly says, it, it's not saying you should control your wife. It's saying you should not harm someone else. What that means is, Christian man, you shouldn't sleep with some woman who isn't your wife because in doing so, you harm her and someone else. Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking advantage and you're doing violence and injustice because you are not, right? And so what does Vessel here mean? Okay, so there's, there's really three arguments. One is that it means wife, right? Which I don't, I, so... The problem with that is, is that it's just too weak a referent parallel, right? Like the the woman is called the weaker vessel in First Peter <coughs> for a very specific reason relative to that argument. And women are not called vessels anywhere else, basically. I mean, it's 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 not a very clear reference. And it's not like women are just commonly called vessels. Yeah. Right? It's just it's not that's just not true. So I actually think that that's kind of a stretch. It's like a, oh, I found a parallel. It must be this. Um right. so, so I don't think it's a wife. So then there's two possibilities. The one is that it refers to the whole body of a person euphemistically. So it's like you need to learn to control yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, the third is there's a minority of biblical commentators who thinks it actually refers to the male sexual organ. Hmm. That you need to learn to control your vessel. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's kind of a little bit crass. It's a little bit like when Paul refers yeah. to, I think of all my righteousness as excrement in Philippians three, and people are like, "You could use a nastier word for that." But well, maybe, maybe not. It's it's a little bit of a yeah. it's a little bit of a vulgarity intentionally to show how important it is. Yeah. Um, but I think the translation "body" there is probably the best one mm-hmm. because "body" there is a euphemism for the male organ and its use, right? Right. In sexual mm-hmm. immorality, right? And to control that is to con- quote control your body. So I think it's perfect. Mm-hmm. You don't really get anything more meaning wise out of it, translating it more narrowly. And also the thing is, is that once you recognize it as body, you can see it as a somewhat egalitarian command because he doesn't explicitly say men. Mm-hmm. He says, you, you all, you know, that you should learn to control your own, right? That you should abstain from sexual immorality, right? Now, you could tell just from the tone of the text that the emphasis is on men, but it's, it's the same as true for women, mm-hmm. right? It's just that just as men initiate other things in the male-female relationship, in this case, it's you, you get this sort of tone that men are to initiate relationships of non-sexual immorality with everyone. And then the assumption is, is that, that women will reciprocate, will be responsive to this. And frankly, I think that this is actually true to nature. I don't think women adore sexual immorality for the most part. I think they really like the surveys done on women and hookup culture is that they really do hate it. Mm -hmm. Um, Even very feminist, like that, like, um, 
like women, women athletes who are super sexually empowered and have no guilt over having promiscuous sex. When you, when you survey them, they're like, yeah, I hate hookup culture. It's terrible. It just feels like a rejection. I feel like a prostitute. It's awful. Right. They, they do it because men make them play the game because there's no longer a cartel of purity among women and all, et cetera. Right. Which is, it's, it's so what this argues. So in, in the world, women control when sex happens. There's no mm-hmm. question about that. Um, always they always have and it's likely that in the world they always will right um but what paul is saying is that really shouldn't be the case shouldn't be the case men should control when sex happens not because they're stronger than women in controlling them right because obviously men can physically rape women if we we don't have the, the social capacity to stop that but beyond that men should be the ones who say no we're not gonna have sex and that's very uncommon Right. I mean, if Christians right. did that, it would be an exclusively Christian virtue. The fact is, is not nearly enough Christian men do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so if that were the case, the church would have very little sexual immorality going on. Yeah, because women, would, I think, would be very responsive to that in a positive way. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So it refers to the refers to your body, which is partly a euphemism for your sexual activity. Right. It's very unlikely, I think, that it refers to a wife, but that has been a minority report for years. But I frankly just don't think it has any merit. I think it's a, I think it's a kind of a facile, it's kind of like a simplistic parallel assertion. Sure. But I don't think it's very good. So it's not a textual critical, critical issue. Body is probably the best translation. And, but it does refer to sexual desires and therefore yeah. the sexual actions of your body. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that goes well to the next question, which is, how do you practice sexual purity when single with normal sex drive? It depends on what you mean by normal. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so um, if, if I took the average person and dropped them in a village 3,000 years ago that had a population of 170 people, being celibate as a single person until you got married would not have seemed like an incredibly terrifying hardship. Right. Um, probably because they would have got married in their middle to late teens, um, women in their early to middle teens usually. And um, there wouldn't have been a lot of naked women running around. There was no pornography. The culture wasn't sexualized. Um, sexuality was treated with modesty. Women dressed modestly. Men were not. Right. So, right you add all that stuff together and it's kind of like, well, yeah, you, people always had hormones and there were always there was always some sexual immorality, but it didn't feel like this. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the things we need to recognize is that we live in a culture that is highly, highly, highly sexualized. And so it makes, so our, um, our sexuality experience is what you might call a distemper. Like we're there, like it's aggravated. It's, it's sort of like if you had like a rash and it just looks really itchy, you know, like normally I would say, look, just don't scratch your arm. And you're like, oh, it's fine. Yes. I don't have to scratch my arm. But if you haven't, if you have a rash on your arm, you just want to scratch the thing as hard as you possibly can. It's the only way to get any relief. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What's happened is we kind of have sex poison ivy in this culture. And especially when, you know, men are getting introduced to pornography as young as eight, usually almost most men have seen pornography by age 11 and so on. We objectify, I mean, we, pe- people talk, you know, they talk raw about the objectification of women. We have, we have not yet come to start to imagine how much we have objectified each other in this culture, sexually, consumeristically. In many different ways. So many of our relationships are subject object rather than subject subject to yeah. quote Catholic social teaching. The other person is a dignified human being that you're relating to that is holistic in their nature. So to look at a woman and to see her sexuality as the main thing you see, even looking at her 
is a profound human brokenness, mm-hmm. right? Most people are like, well, it's just that's just evolutionary, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't care what you believe about orange, origins, but to recognize it, to look at a woman and to not see that she is an image bearer along with her sexuality at first glance is a problem, right? And I, I don't say that as like, and I've, that's never happened to me. It happens to me all the time, constantly. Yeah. Right, but the but you should need to recognize that that's a that's a distemper. It's a rash. It's a sickness. It's a brokenness. It yeah. is an aggravation of the human desire. And because of that, um, one of the ways that you deal with this as a single person is you quit distempering your sexuality in every way you possibly can. No pornography, no masturbation. Don't tease yourself in relationships. Don't get involved in relationships that you don't have meaningful interest in pursuing. Don't I just mm-hmm. stop distempering your sexuality first of all? Yeah, um, I think that's important. I think growing in godliness, and then growing in the psychological healing of tre- seeing people in less objectified ways in every way. So, like, learn the name of every person who serves you at a restaurant immediately, and say, "This is a person." For the rest of this meal, I'm going to treat this person like a person who matters. Mm-hmm. Ask them at least one question about themselves. At every meeting, like just start doing things in your life. Let people cut you off in traffic. Stop and let people pull in. Give people the parking space. Invite the person who gets to the grocery line at the same time and needs you to go ahead of you. Treat yeah. other people better than yourself. Act like in every relationship you're in a subject, subject, not a subject, object relationship. Mm-hmm. Right? And that your purpose in the world is not to extract your own pleasures and whatever from everybody else. Right? Like start like the basics, that kind of stuff. And it's, right. it'll start to reshape your character. And then mm-hmm. you'll treat women differently. Yeah. Right. And you'll treat or men or whatever, you know, whatever yeah, you are. Yeah. And I, th- I th- sometimes I think it's like we we think that it's it's something, some special trick and it, it's not. It's yeah. actually becoming a holistic person because the thing that keeps your sexuality in line is everything else mm-hmm. is being the everything else. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, as as you were talking, I was thinking about um, a couple things were coming to mind, but that there's, I know for myself, I tend to want everything to be really efficient and um, quick. And so like some of these things that you were talking about, I'm like, I am terrible at that. Like my husband's great at those things, letting people in when we're like, we just had this, we were in line at Dunkin' Donuts and some car was trying to get in. I was like, I know you're going to let them in. You're going to just let them right ahead of us. And sure enough, he did. But um, I I could and I, so I, I know that I struggle with those things because I'm like, oh, I'm here. I just, it's going to be quicker and I want to make things quick and fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was thinking about at a grocery store, like I've, I've tried to do better about that when you were saying um, it helps you to see them as a person. Like I, I do see that changing in myself. And then what it reminded me of was I read this recently that um, Tim Keller's church did a seminar at one time about the deadly sins and vices. And there it, there were breakout sessions for each one. And there was one on greed and nobody came <laughs> because nobody thought that they struggled with greed. In New York City. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so um, all, so then I, and I was thinking about passages that, put greed, but greed greed is a distemper together. Right? yes yes and so i just sexual immorality was, is a form of greed exactly exactly right. and so i see how like it's it, it may be easy for me to say well i don't deal with that distemper in terms of sexuality or purity and at which point it's like well first of all that's wrong but <laughs> second of all like i have all of the other ones that lead up to that particularly mm-hmm. greed 
I do experience that. And if I try to root that out at that level, that's part of rooting out my disordered sexual desires as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, all this, all the seven deadly sins are have some root in the flesh and are fed by some sort of distemper in us. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, do we let that do the reasoning for us? Because th- though the flesh will then give us a reasoning by which to give into it, or we can take the reasoning of God and give them, give these um, parts of our desires provident, provident instructions, right? Mm-hmm. So Catholic social teaching or, or Catholic spirituality would say it this way. Um, they would say, um, what makes humans humans is our capacity for free will and the providential dictation of our actions. And that is the direction of our spiritual emotion. So mm. um, having spiritual emotion is important. Having emotion is important. Having desires is critical. But the, are, we have the capacity to be to be provident and directive through reason towards our actions. And reason is supposed to be filled with the knowledge of God. So absolutely. So, so I mean, so in, a, you know, in addition to those things, right, um, you don't have to be placidly single. I, th- I mean, First Corinthians seven does argue that acquiring a wife can be a good thing, especially in relationship to sexual morality. I mean, it, it's, there's a reason why Genesis two God says that it's not good for a man to be alone. Um, and I, I assume that if the story was told a different way, that that would be true for women as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, another thing is like, are you are you screwing around being single? Are you not preparing yourself? Um, to be the sort of band that would attract the kind of woman that you're looking for, all those kinds of things, right? Yeah. And then, then also, like, are what are you? What's your life about? One of the things that that causes men and women to struggle with sexual morality is their life isn't about enough other things <laughs> or enough meaningful things. Like, if all, like, I know a lot of younger guys who all they do is play video games, eat, and look for chicks, and like, yeah, that well, then chicks are a third of your life. Like, I mean, yeah, you're going to struggle with sexual morality, right? But if you're like. I don't know, doing other very meaningful things like reading with kids. And I mean, it's sometimes even a meaningful hobby, like making stuff out of wood or fishing, like, mm-hmm. but you're, but you're focused on something else that a lot of your energies are moving in those directions. Right. Otherwise yeah. you're perseverating on what you don't have sexually. Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously there's a lot more than that. Like we mm-hmm. our bodies weren't made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, like giving ourselves to the Lord and having a purity of heart, not just against sexual immorality, but purity of heart towards the one thing, which is Christ. There's lots of stuff, but usually what I find is people have to expand their world. Mm. Yeah. Um, and let me, so let me say one more thing about this. One yeah. of the things you also have to recognize about dealing with sexual immorality, if you're a single person with a normal sex drive is to what extent is your normal sex drive affected by your psychological wounds? because mm-hmm. they will aggravate sexual immorality incredibly. Most of the, all, virtually all of the men who struggle with some form of sexual sin or what we, we like to call now unwanted sexual behavior. Well, mm-hmm. Let's just call it sin. It's behavior God doesn't want, right? <laughs> yeah. um, almost all of them, they go to like forgive it and free or something like that. And they find it and they're like, yeah, I need to stop doing this. And they, they get their little one week chip and their two week, whatever, you know. And then at some point they realize that like, there's a reason I do this mm-hmm. and it's not horniness. Right. It's something else. Yeah. yeah. It's very easy to think that it is that. Yeah. I, I remember when I, I was, I was, um, I wasn't sexually promiscuous when I was a teenager, but I was, I was like a dating promiscuous, right? I just dated a lot of different people just all the time. Mm-hmm. And it had, it had, I thought it had to do with me having a huge sex drive. It really didn't. It had everything to do with me having a huge hole in my heart, um, wanting of wanting to be wanted. 
and feeling mm-hmm. rejected and yeah. so on. And because I didn't even know that, yeah, like I just thought I was horny and it had, it had very little to do with it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times our sexual desires that we think are completely out of control, we mm-hmm. think that that's a sex part of our sex drive and it's not. It's how you are psychologically coping with these other wounds that God wants to heal, but he can't heal them as long as you just think that it's a desire to look at pornography or something or to right. hook up with somebody you just met. It It's actually about the fact that you feel worthless or you don't feel safe or you don't feel like anybody really cares about you or you feel like you're, you were made to be abused or whatever. Yeah. Well, and I, I've heard women, I mean, since I've been in college and was having these sorts of conversations with my friends, we've talked about those sorts of things that like there's a, there's something behind this. I um, And I think it's been quicker for women to recognize that. Um, I think it sometimes it's harder for men to, to think that there could be an emotional wound that's leading to these different types of physical sins because it's, mm-hmm. we don't tend to, Men aren't always that that deeply connected to their emotions or thinking that their physical relationships or their sexual temptations are going to be related to emotional things as well. Yeah, We're I don't to say that for women. Yeah, I mean, this may be bigoted and prejudicial, but I just don't think that healing is one of the core operative diagnostics of males. And I think it is for women. I think women yeah, are looking yeah. for hurts and seeking to heal them. I think men are not doing that. I think yeah. I think one of the operative actions is how 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 what percentage of you can be damaged and you can still be moving. Like that's one of the things yeah. like <laughs> yeah. if I lost an arm and a leg, could I still keep fighting? You know like that. Yeah. And so men one of the things men do is they they specialize in shutting down sections of the ship so the thing can keep flying. Yeah. And that's that is actually extremely important. Some people think, oh, that's just repression. That's just terrible. No, because there's a lot of life where you got to keep doing that, especially if you have why, why a wife and children depending on you. But no man can fight battle after battle back to back to back to back to back mm-hmm. without some reprieve. And yeah. in the reprieve, the manly thing to do is to heal as much as possible before the next fight. Yeah, And I think that men do need to submit themselves to that process. And sometimes they need to be guided through it because they just don't know how to do it. Yeah, And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. So yeah. I, yeah. So I think, I think that that, that is true. But if, if a man wants to be strong in the long run, he has to deal with his, um, the, the cracks in his foundation mm-hmm. or he'll be strong for a while and then he will finally break. And yeah. when he breaks, he'll break big. Yeah. And so I think, I think, I do think that it's important. So, so I think that, I, I think that that area of psychological healing is actually really big. And I think that if I think that in the current crop of younger adults that we have right now that are going to be the disproportionately larger single group, I think that they have a lot of dysfunction, a lot of hurts, a lot of I wouldn't call them traumas because according according to the definition of trauma in the like whatever, whatever, whatever psych manual, a lot of stuff isn't technically trauma by that definition, but it's trauma in the sense of a harm that will not heal by itself. Right. Like, you know, like somebody like they break their arm and the doctor tries to say they put it in a cast and it heals, but it doesn't heal right. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, ah, oh, we're going to have to break your arm and do like a surgery mm-hmm. to really get your arm right. But if you don't, then your arm's always, always going to be like this. Yeah. It's like that. Like there's some things in your life that you need to recover from. Mm-hmm. They weren't literally a fundamental attack at the basic security of you being alive or not being raped, which is like the definition apparently in the manual. 
but but it is a wound that you carry that if you don't go back and treat it by recutting it yeah you can't get better and yep. that wound is necessary yeah literally that's what the word trauma is just the word for wound in greek turned into an english word so i i hesitate to call one a trauma and one a wound yeah but, yeah but the connotation in trauma is that it's more yes. more um blunt it's like a more blunt life and death kind of thing but we tend to have anything that attacks our security psychologically feels like life and death to us yeah yeah absolutely in a way so anyway mm-hmm. but, but like yeah i understand the desire not to cheapen the concept of trauma psychologically and yet the need for universal treatment of people's hurts so yeah mm-hmm. it's just a tension we have to live with i guess yeah okay let's change oh, gears can I, can I have one more comment lastly yeah let's not wait till we're 34 to get married if we can help it like like yeah i would say get about the business of it when you turn 20 if not, if you're not already like looking for someone beforehand, yeah, because the waiting till you're 28 or 26 or 25 even to get married intentionally. I'm not saying like you just didn't find the right person. I'm talking like you just you weren't mature enough. You weren't thinking about it. You weren't looking for somebody. You were just screwing around, right, or doing other things. Um, you, I think you should start start look if you want to be married at some point. I think you should start looking for a suitable person as soon as you can reasonably consider yourself an adult or within the amount of time you're willing to date from being an adult. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't put it off further than that. Yeah. Um, partly because everybody wants the same thing. Like people are like, I just want to find the person per- perfect for me. No, you don't. You want what everybody else wants. Basically. I mean, yeah, there's some types in there, but you want like somebody who's caring and godly and wants real intimacy and is going to pull their own weight and can deal with things when the chips are down and blah, 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 blah. All the great virtues of a human person who's a great partner. So don't wait until half the generation is taken off the market before you start looking. First of all, it's just bad tactics. But then secondly, start looking for somebody and like get focused and let your sex drive drive you to the altar. Yeah. That's why men get married. Men get married. Men get married because of their sex drive. If you, if you hold them back from it, like every time I find out that a couple dates for five, seven, 10 years, it's always because they were having sex. The, th- the thing that forces men to deal with stuff is their sex drive. Mm-hmm. Otherwise they'll put it off because men, men need to be, men have to take responsibility to fulfill God's will. And most men won't until somebody makes them, mm. yeah. which is usually their father in their house and usually a woman in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I will, Last thing about that, if you want to hear more, any of our podcast episodes that start with Escaping Babel in our Escaping Babel series, you might be interested in those because we go a lot more in depth on all of those things. Jill said episode 78 was really good on that kind of stuff. Okay, great. Um, Okay, we're going to change gears to questions that are unrelated to the sermon and some, they're just more, some of them are cultural or random. Here is the first one. To what extent are we idolizing our safety in the changes that we're making as individuals and as the church to our detriment in response to the pandemic? Yeah, I think the answer to the question is we don't know. Hmm. I mean, I I know that's not probably the answer that the person asking was looking for, but um, one of the reasons why these decisions are being made by politicians is because they are political decisions. They are the yeah. weighing of everything against everything in relationship to what should be done. So like I, on one level, I, I had some people say, you know, well, um, you know, we should have the doctors be making these decisions because these are medical decisions. I couldn't disagree more. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think having epidemiologists making these decisions is a terrible idea 
because more than it's more than an epidemiological question. Yeah. You're talking about economies and peoples and ages and international relationships and all those sorts of things. And so we should definitely be listening to epidemiologists. We should be trying right. to learn the facts we can about epidemiology and this particular disease and how that would work and all that, which we can find out. They can tell us. Like it's not like it's like math that we can't know or something. Yeah. And then based on that, we need to make other calculations like if if 70 million people lose 12% of their net worth that they spent portions of their life trying to accrue. Is that worth three lives? Like that's not an epidemiological question, Mm -hmm. right? So it is true that we're making all kinds of trade-offs. Yeah. We have been and we will be, and this is going to continue. So that's one of the reasons why I've said to people. So what I've tried to do as a church leader is try to create a number of options that took in the most possible people so that they can act according to conscience as they mm-hmm. walk with the Lord. Mm-hmm. So if their belief is they don't want to live in fear and they feel like that's the most important thing because being a certain kind of person is more important maybe than even being a person who doesn't get this disease. Right. Um, I, I think it's a fundamentally Christian idea. There are some things there, there, there are some things that I would rather die than do. Yeah. And if you're that kind of a person, which I think everybody should be that kind of a person, but if you are the kind of a person, there's some things you would rather die than do then by definition, death is not the most important thing, mm-hmm. right? And so the question is, well, what are the things, right? And for some people, it just might be always telling the truth or for some people, it just might be not being raped or something, right? Right. And, but then for some people, it might be gathering for worship. Mm-hmm. I'd rather, so like if I was in China and if I gathered for worship, I would be arrested. I'm gathering for worship, right? There's some people that do that all over the world. Yeah. And there's other people that don't. Um, and that, that's a thing, man. And that's, that was a controversy in the church in the first couple centuries that when the Romans came to kill people and some people ran away or even burned incense to the emperor as a repudiation of their Christian faith. But then after the persecution was over, they wanted to come back to the church, Mm. whether or not they could. They're like, well, some of us got tortured. So my, my, you know, my wife got killed and now you want to come back into the church and you burned incense to the emperor? No. Right. Um, and ultimately then I think it was called the innovation controversy. It was settled by the fact that yes, they could come back to the church if they put their faith in Christ. They did a particular penance because it was believed that they did so out of cowardice, which was a weakness or an infirmity. Right. So there are some people that I think are going to choose not to do things because they think it's responsible, right? They're doing yep. it out of faith. So there's some people that won't wear masks and it, it they and they do it out of faith. They believe that to wear a mask would be sin because it's capitulating to something that they think is really wicked. And then other people will wear a mask after this is even over, you know, just because they just think it's really important. Um, some people do it because out of love for their neighbor, because they know that if they don't wear it, the people who see them at the gas station will think that they don't care about their city mm-hmm. or old people or whatever. Um, and I think all of these are reasonable approaches. And if you, if you tell me, well, I know absolutely this is wrong. Like you're wrong. I don't know that you do. Like, like there's, there are so many complicating factors here. Right. And yeah. everybody's listening to a limited group of voices and some of these voices have changed their mind over time, right? Like the mm-hmm. mask things is a clear example where they were like, wear masks, don't wear masks. No, definitely wear masks, but cloth <laughs> ones that we wouldn't use for anything else. You wouldn't use this cloth mask to protect you from sawdust, yeah. but it does protect you from diseases or from giving disease to others. You know, like, yeah. and you're kind of like, yeah. like I, I mean, I had a doctor in my living room a few weeks back when people were talking about masks and she's like, I will never wear masks. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. They don't, it does nothing. Like just, just thinking about it from a medical perspective, this is the dumbest thing, right? 
and I have other doctors that are just like, how can we not wear masks? You, I mean, they should all be mandatory forever. It's so, yeah. So I think what you do is you have to, everybody has to answer that question for themselves. Mm-hmm. And you have to decide what you're going to do. And as what yeah. I try to do as a church leader is to make space for everybody to act according to conscience. Yeah. So then, so I think that's a really helpful, first of all, I think that's really helpful to be able to have this conversation about conscience that mm-hmm. like we, we have to be, cause sometimes I think it's, it's just too easy for us to say, we want someone else to make the decision for us and then we'll just do whatever they say. Like, well, no, that's, yeah. I mean, sometimes that's what we have to do living in an environment where we have governments and laws, but we should be wanting to grow in our capability to make these sorts of questions ourselves. So, so that's really right. good and helpful. Um, what would you say to the individual who's wondering, like, am I, how can I know if I'm idolizing my safety? I, I really think it's their motivation, right? Like, okay. are you doing it because you're terrified? Like, and, and is your fear disproportionate and is it keeping you from doing a good that's your duty, right? So there's this, there was this um, piece written by Martin Luther in the 1500s about that is called something like, is it, can a Christian flee during a plague? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his argument was, yes. So long as, so long as you, there's no reason to believe that you will carry the plague with you to another place. And so long as you do not have a prescribed duty, you can flee. Right. But if there's some reason to believe you'll carry the plague to another place, or if you have a prescribed duty, you cannot flee. So for example, mm-hmm. if you're a government magistrate, you can't flee. If you're a pastor and your job is to shepherd the people who are there, you can't flee. Mm-hmm. So the, the question I would ask, and I think that that's right. I think that that's a, a good yeah. way to think about it. So I think one of the things you'd ask yourself in the pandemic is, is the way I'm behaving keeping me from a duty? And I would rather do this. I would rather protect myself than do a duty that is a real duty. Right mm-hmm. now, that can get a little shaky because yeah, because what counts as a duty? Right, is is showing up in person to worship a duty? Right, yeah. like that's. But the, the thing is, is that like that's a good question, right? If you show up online, are you showing up? If you do a small group at your house, is that showing up? Do you mm-hmm. have to come to the building? What about the right? So, and the answer to that is, I think that these are areas of conscience. I don't think these are areas of, of clear biblical dictation. If God wanted to do that, he very well could have done it. God didn't even dictate that Sunday is the day of worship, not in the way you think in the mm-hmm. Bible. It was just referred to as the Lord's Day. Christians started worshiping on it, mainly out of convenience because they went to synagogue the night before. Right. And but but we a lot of us think that like Sunday is completely sacrosanct. And like for me, culturally it is. Yeah. I think that it is important. But like it's not like in the it's not in the Bible in the way most people think it is. Right. Mm-hmm. In fact, it literally says in Colossians, God, you can call all days the same, or you can have someday special, but and, but don't judge each other and do it according to conscience. Basically, is what it says. Right. And it don't think that th- because you did this thing on that day that you're somehow spiritual. You're not. Right. Yeah. So I think that it's important to say. But here's the thing: I think that we should hold gathering together for worship as sacred, and so we yeah. should have an attitude towards it and interact with it in such a way as to recognize it is profoundly sacred and very valuable. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I mean, even as we've been opening up the building, so we've had two Sundays where we've allowed people into the into the building for our services. Mm-hmm. And some of what I've heard from some some of the people, not everybody, but a few of the people both weeks have said, oh, it is so good to be back in this building. It's right. so good to be back in this space. And, and there's a part of me, I, I think I feel torn with that because there's a part of me that gets the like, it's not this building that is holy. It's that we've gathered together and what this building symbolizes and represents. Right. And yet 
culturally and traditionally, we know what this building represents. And so now it does hold this meaning for us. And so I can understand both perspectives of it. And I mean, the same thing, like there's a, there is a, a Hilton Hotel in downtown Minneapolis where I went to a winter conference as a college student for four years as a student and then four years as I worked on staff. Mm-hmm. And it's just the Hilton Hotel. There's nothing that's that special about it. But I know how many lives have been changed in that ballroom. I mean, my my husband became a Christian there and I know p- many other people who have as well. And it's yeah. it holds this special meaning to me. It's just a hotel. But it feels like something else. And so I can yeah. I think that it's important for us to recognize that in this, that that yeah, it's just it's Sunday and it could be any other day, but Sunday has become something to us and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, Christians, I think, have a very, especially, I mean, this wouldn't be true if we were Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox, right? Or maybe Lutherans. But Christians, especially in the evangelical world, have really lost a a sense of symbols, right? It's right. one of the reasons yes. why if you go to an American Anglican church, almost all of them are ex-evangelicals yeah. because they like, they uh-huh. believe in Jesus, but like they feel like there is some bolt missing to yes. bolt them to the rootedness of their own faith. And they don't uh-huh. realize that it is the symbols of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Cubans are used to binding with those symbols. I went to a conference that was run by mostly Anglicans and I was like, Scott, if I wasn't working at a church that I like really loved and believed in and wanted to be at, I would be like, let's go to an Anglican church. Yeah. Because I felt that. I felt yeah. that very thing. I get it. Right. Right. And so you can you can lose yourself in symbols and traditions yeah. and those sorts of things. But human beings are kind of wired to do that. I mean, think about it this way. In the Revolutionary War or in the Civil War, right? If the person carrying the flag fell, somebody yeah. would drop their rifle and go and pick up a six by six by three and a half piece of cloth. Right. To wave it in the air. Like, how stupid is that? Right. But like the flag symbolized the fight in your side and what you were fighting for and what it meant. And like, so, and people would like shoot for that guy, the guy who didn't have a gun, they'd shoot for that guy because yeah. this, that symbol really mattered. And to, yeah. and people would rather die in battle than let that flag fall. Yeah. And, and people forget that many of the things that we're connected with, the symbols that matter to us, have like it's it's a very atheistic and secularistic in the worst possible sense to have this kind of um utilitarian valuing of everything i mean that's one of the reasons why like churches weren't allowed to open for a while because it's like well what is a church right well it's a gathering it's a business Mm -hmm. what is it what does it even do does it provide anything for our community and of course secular people have no idea how to think about that right right it's like well we probably shouldn't let those people get together they'll just spread the disease and they're not really doing anything worthwhile anyway Right. Whereas arguably it's the most important thing that happens in the city, like Mm -hmm. from our perspective. Right. I mean, not in the sense that like it's literally more important and other things should be done or something, but just there's nothing more important than giving God his due. Yeah. And for the people of God to be strengthened by meeting together. Right. So, yeah. So I think people are, are weighing that like, like if I don't go this week, how big a deal is that in me releasing the symbol that defines who I am? So I, I think as people try to recognize the importance of affirming the symbols that define our very life, as opposed to an action that could risk our life, mm-hmm. I just think you got to give people a lot of space for that. Yeah. But I think I think though that they need to understand both those things. Yeah. Like there's some people I talk to, and they're like, "Look, it's a disease. We should just all stay away. Like it, this is the no-brainer." And then other people are like, "This is stupid. It's just a. It's like basically a flu. Who cares? Like we should all get because church is important." 
Well, no, it's actually a really terrible trade-off. Okay, it's yeah. a, it's it's a terrible trade-off. It is a more contagious flu that is more deadly, right? And if we do nothing, it could spread more. And we don't really know how much, but it could be kind of bad for people, right? And it could give the church a bad reputation and therefore mm-hmm. Jesus among people who were made to delight in him. Mm-hmm. But also it draws us away from the things mar- that mark out our, the symbol, uh, the symbols of our devotion to God, which divine, define our very being. And secondly, it disperses the flock of God, yeah. which endangers all of them to the roaring lion that is about to eat them, says mm-hmm. First Peter. And those two things are also life and death in the eternal sense and in the temporal sense. So, uh, so therefore, I believe that individuals need to yeah. think about their motives. Yeah, and so good. if you're not going to go to church why and in what ways are you upholding the symbolism of your faith maybe you need to have a cross in your house maybe you need to pray maybe you need to make a little chapel and maybe you need to pray yeah. with your family together and maybe you need right. to like maybe there are ways that you find a both and in the midst of it yeah but yeah i think it's really naive i think i think it, i think we're just prone to like we just want a simple answer and we we just yeah. accept something we forget we forget how many i mean edmund burke used to say that you can't you, it's very hard to change the institutions of human beings because they are taking into account so many different things that are presumed and now forgotten that when you mm-hmm. change them, it's like getting rid of marriage. It's like destabilizing the family. There's all these problems that have come into our society by the diminishing of the family. And people mm-hmm. thought, well, it'll be a great liberation from women and it'll be, it'll be wonderful. And it's been awful in basically every way. Yeah. And it was because we didn't realize it was doing 170 things. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think um, you getting at the idea that we have to hold these tensions to like hold them in tension, these differences and recognize that they can both be true at the same time. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I thought you, you left. Stop talking. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I thought, where are you going? That's I should give you the like, keep talking song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but I, th- it's one of the things that I think I have, um, I've learned a lot in the midst of this pandemic period of time, both because of the pandemic as well as because of George Floyd's death and what has come after that. That we're we yeah. are just not good at holding things in tension. And I, I was thinking about this mm-hmm. yesterday because it was the Fourth of July, and I. I mean, on social media, you just saw people experiencing this differently from 4th of July last year mm-hmm. and um, wrestling with it. And um, this is not the first year that I've had a complicated relationship with the 4th of July. And uh, I, the church I went to growing up, we would sing patriotic songs, whatever Sunday was close to that. And I would just look over at my dad, who wasn't a citizen, and think like, this is so strange to me. Like, why why are we singing these songs here in church? And so I've, I've always felt this tension, but I've, I think I've realized how just how those tensions push us in a really good way. Like, I need people who love America and see all the wonderful achievements from this country and see the capacity that this country has for good. I need those people in my life so that I can recognize that. And people need to have others help them see what atrocities have happened in this country as well. And both of them are true at the same time and will continue to be true. And that that's yeah. Having yeah. A, I mean, name a society that was great that wasn't also terrible. Yeah. Egypt, and so Rome, Greece. I mean, th- right. th- there's never been one. In right. The, China. 
Yes. There's just never been this yeah. like society that, w- that created all these advancements and there were no atrocities. Yeah. And so I, I think I've just understood so much more in this time how much I need the people who think differently than I do and who think different things from me in my life so that I am not getting just surrounded by one thought. Mm-hmm. And, and, I think who are the, and who are themselves reasonable like that? Yeah. And and I think opening up the building and closing the building, that's just another example of that, that we, there are lots of ways people have been approaching this thoughtfully. And yeah, lots of ways that people have approached it foolishly, but also thoughtfully. And so anyway. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at the, um, the protests and stuff post George Floyd, a lot of those have been around symbols and Mm -hmm. what symbolizes what to whom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm what the police symbolize, what certain statues symbolize. Yes. All those kinds of things. Yep. All right. Let's move to the next question. Maybe we can do the next few a little quicker. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Is saving for something financially is saving some for something biblical or is it better to give the money away and trust the Lord to provide? I, I think that if you, believe it's always wrong to save, then you have to buy into a hermit life. You know, because you're not going to buy a house. You probably yeah. aren't going to buy. You might be able to buy a car. I mean, you can get some cheap cars. But um, there's nothing in the Bible against saving. There just isn't. Yeah. Um, now, there is, a, there is a section in Luke's gospel about the guy who builds, tears down his barns and builds bigger barns. Yep. And um, there's, I preached a sermon on that somewhere. If you want to find it, um, there is a rejection of of productivity there that is part of the sin. Um, and then also, he's not building barns for the first time. He's tearing down perfectly adequate barns for a rich man mm-hmm. and building even larger ones. Yeah. And so there there is a. I do think that there is an amount of wealth that is it is unseemly to accumulate. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I have the right to tell you what that is. Yeah. But I, I do think that there is there is that. I, I think I think what what the um, what the scripture teaches about riches is like it, it says that rich people should learn to share and not put their hope in riches. That's what it says. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that I think that that's the stand we have to take is that mm-hmm. if you're wealthy, you need to be generous. You need to be generous, particularly with the poor. Not just institutions that you like and art that you like, but you need mm-hmm. to be you need to be um, you need to see a fortune in your fortune that you are mm-hmm. you are fortunate that there's something providential that happened. Like yeah. I was just thinking the other night about how like you know there are things that there are things that if I wasn't a pastor and I didn't feel called to something, I would be living a different life right now. Mm-hmm. And if I was an atheist and did, or didn't believe in heaven or something like that, I would feel like my life was being ripped off because I would rather live in a different place and maybe do something that was a job that wasn't as stressful or pressured mm-hmm. or where not so many people looked to me. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't really want to be a leader. I, like, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. yet I believe, I, I believe I was called to this and I was gifted for it and this is what I'm here to do. And it's yeah. fine. And I, and I love it. I, and, and then I, I was at a, uh, an orphanage in the Dominican Republic where not only were the, the kids at their orphans, but they were very severely physically and mentally disabled. Mm-hmm. And that came to mind while I was praying about this, huh. that it, it it is the fortune of the Lord. It was his own providence that I wasn't born one of those children. Right. That who could yeah. never move out of their bed their entire life. 
Right. It's merely the grace of God. Yeah. And I need to realize that, that for all my riches of all the various kinds that I have. Yeah. That, yes, I worked hard. Yes, I did a lot. Yes, I've gone to school. Yes, I went to school as much as a doctor. Yes, I've worked harder than my peers. Yes, whatever. Mm -hmm. But like, I also could have not had a a properly functioning brain. I could have easily had some kind of health problem. I could have died in the womb. A lot of things could have happened to me. And it was, it's, and I, and I stand on the shoulders of people in my family who did something with their lives and all of that. And all of that is fortune. And the only way to worship God in that fortune is to behave as though you believe it's there through generosity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You believe that you got fortune and many of the poor did not. Yeah. And so you focus your generosity on the people who are poor because of tragedy first. So the orphan and the widow. This, right, this, the assumption in the Bible is, is that these are people who are poor because of things that have nothing to do with their choices. Now, right. the Bible does not teach that if people made bad choices, we don't love them mercifully. It just means that that how you treat somebody who is who is the subject of misfortune mm-hmm. demonstrates what you believe about fortune and therefore providence and therefore God. Right. And if you believe that God's providence was fundamental to where you are in blessing, then you need to recognize that providence is a tricky mistress and God has in his sovereign will allowed other people to be born in misfortune. And you are supposed to exert your image-bearing providence to disagree with the curse and to restore them to mm-hmm. image-bearing dignity as best as you can. And that is the activity of God you're meant to do. Yeah. And so I think that every every rich person needs to face that. Every person yeah. needs. But, this, but none of that has anything to do with savings. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes you'll save now to give later. Right. Like my mom is very generous. She'll cut thousand dollar check for this two thousand. Like she, I've, I saw her cut. A, oh, I'll just give ten thousand dollars. She writes ten thousand dollar check to somebody. Oh my goodness. She saved her whole life. Yeah. She saved and invested her whole life, and now mm-hmm. she's giving a lot of her money away. Right. Yeah. But she's giving away so much more now. You could argue if she had invested that money in the kingdom of God fifty years ago, it would be producing stock dividends in the kingdom for fifty years, and maybe it would have produced more. Maybe. Maybe. But yeah. she also needed to save to take care of herself. Or her kids, if she needed to, right, right, and that's and, that's part of stewardship and responsibility. Yeah, the um, the passage that comes to mind is uh, from Genesis, in when um, Joseph goes to Egypt, and he talks to Pharaoh about you're going to have seven years of wonderful crops, and then seven years of famine. Right. So get ready. <laughs> you better save up. Yeah, you better right. save up. Exactly. Yeah. I I also think that one of the reasons savings is practically important is that a lot of people don't do what they think is God's will because they're afraid because of financial reasons. Mm -hmm. And so there's two ways to escape that. One is to repent of your idolatry and to let your goods and kindred go, right? Like Lexi and I live in a really nice house, probably way nicer house than we should live in, um, or it would definitely need. And I could see making a decision in the future where I'll have to just let that house go. Mm-hmm. Instead of like, well, you know, if I took a pay cut and I did that, so we could, you know, so I could still be at high point where we could get a new senior pastor, but we could afford them and I could still maybe be the missions pastor or something like when I'm 63. Yeah. Well, maybe I got to sell my house to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Or so sometimes it's just, you got to be able to let go your, your standard of living. Maybe you're not, maybe yeah. your standard of living isn't just, it just isn't going to increase throughout your life. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Yep. But then secondly, sometimes you have to save money so that you can make bold steps. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I so I think being a wise steward and saving money and investing it is good for those yeah. reasons. Yeah. 
John Wesley used to say it. So here's a simple, he used to say, um, earn all you can be as productive a person as you can be save all you can be frugal and don't waste your money and then give all you can. Yeah. If you do the first two and not the third, it's like starting a fire and then grabbing it with your hands and putting it in your lap mm-hmm. without the give all you can. It just doesn't work. But of course the second one is save all you can. Yeah. We could have just said that. Could have just said that. <laughs> all the other stuff is helpful though. Okay. Um, next question. Does God still speak to us today? And my, I guess you're going to start by saying, well, it depends on what you mean by speak to us. Yeah. So the answer is yes. Right. Um, God is still speaking in the man, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. It's in scripturation and it's continued proclamation. That's the main way he speaks to us. He speaks to us in the word of God written, which is the scriptures, which tells the story of the people of God and his interaction with them. And so or, okay, obviously it's hopefully obvious, but. Um, these, when you say that these things are the quote word of God, you're saying that he's speaking. That's the implication of it being a word, Mm -hmm. right? What most people tend to think is, is, is there some intuitional or prophetic way God is speaking to us? Mm -hmm. So the new Testament affirms the gift of prophecy and appears to affirm it until the return of Christ. The first Corinthians 13 says that these things will are, are like dim reflections as in a mirror and they will pass away quote when perfection comes. Um, cessationists have argued that perfection is the is the compilation and canonization of the New Testament so that we had the whole Bible and then prophecy would stop. That's not what the verse means. The verse means the return of Christ. So in that sense, the gifts like tongues and prophecy are going to continue until the return of Christ, which means if Christ is not yet returned, they're still operative. So mm-hmm. there is a gift of prophecy, which is a means by which God speaks into the intuitions of somebody who's in line with his spirit, who's gifted mm-hmm. for this. And then they speak out God's words, right? We don't believe that those can override scripture, but we believe that they can be from the Lord. Yeah. Um, the, a question can then arise, like, then is it disobedience not to do them? Like if somebody who seems to have a prophetic gift makes a statement that's in line with scripture, but it's also specific to your life that you should do A, B, or C, should mm. you do A, B, or C? Yeah. Right. And my, my answer to that is, I don't know. Yeah. I doubt that it's, I doubt that not following that is the same as disobeying the revealed will of God. Mm-hmm. But that, that's a difficult, that's an interesting and difficult question. And then the yeah. second part is, does the Holy Spirit, Spirit speak to like your intuitions? Yeah. And you hear God's voice in your heart, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And one, experientially, I believe that it that probably happens. Scripturally, I have a very difficult time finding a verse that teaches that. Hmm. And so there's a book called um, Good News for Anxious Christians by Philip Carey. He's a Lutheran scholar. And Lutherans tend to focus on objective theology. They tend to be not for this kind of thing. And so he talks about, he, there's a chapter in the book called You Don't Have to Hear God's Will in Your Heart. Instead, you need to learn virtue and live according to it. Right, is the argument of the passage. I think holistically in reading the whole New Testament, that's correct. But at the same time, we know that the Holy Spirit does dwell in us. We know that there is a gift of prophecy. Yeah. We know that God does speak to people in, individually and particularly throughout um, the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And um, there are sayings in the Bible that kind of feel like maybe, right? Like it says, Jesus says to his disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to come and remind you of all these things. Mm-hmm. Right? Does that does that just bring them to memory, or is it like feels right. like teaching? And you're like, so there right. are ways in which, like, some people look at the passage in Romans eight where it says the Holy Spirit groans within us. Mm-hmm. Right? What's that? 
um, Romans 12, how do you conform? How do you like really learn God's good, pleasing and perfect will? Is it some activity of the spirit that does that? So I don't have a big issue with that. I just, so the first thing I want to do is, is put Christians at ease. Yeah. That you don't have to hear God's voice in your heart to be a Christian, to be a hundred percent God's, to love Jesus, to do what Jesus told you to do, to be in the will of God, all those things. You don't have to hear God's voice in your heart. So don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah. However, if intuitionally you feel like God is speaking to you, be open to it. Like apply it to what scripture says, maybe write it in a journal, then talk to some wise believers and mm-hmm. then discern what you should do with that. Because because I would say do, do similar what the New Testament teaches about the gift of prophecy, which says every prophecy should be tested mm-hmm. by someone who isn't doing the prophesying. prophesying. Right, both First Corinthians fourteen. I think I think it's in First John where it's like test everything and hold yeah. good in relationship to prophecy. But it also says don't forbid mm-hmm. prophecies or speaking in tongues. So, um, so yeah, I would I would I would go through that advisedly, right? And I I'm I'm always open to that. And I feel like there are a few times where I feel like maybe God has said something to me that was. I was like, just yeah. going to ask you if you've yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not been a big part of my life. I have always referred to myself as a failed mystic. Like yeah. I, would, man, I would love for God to speak to me. I wish I had yeah. this feeling. I would love to be that guy. Yeah. Um, but I never have been. And mm-hmm. I don't blame God for not doing so. I think that right. he ha- probably has more humble servants that he could do those kinds of great works through. Yeah. And uh, maybe so maybe someday I'll be a I'll be a useful vessel for that. But um I don't think I am right now. Or he just has chosen to do it through somebody else, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean there's some times where I felt kind of led. But I but I it was, I mean, I couldn't distinguish it from the rest of my inner psychology, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sure, I would love God to speak to me, but it's usually because I want him to take responsibility for my decisions. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really want all the responsibility yeah. of being free. Yeah. You know, and so, but I want to, but I still but I want to be free. Right. So it's, it's a huge weight to be a free creature acting in liberty under as a steward of almighty God, as opposed to being told what to do all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I know I have heard you talk about this before, but just to add to this, can you speak a little bit to how God, what you think about God using dreams to speak to people? He clearly d- has done it in the Bible. Right. And so I think that, um, I think the bit you've heard me say on this is sometimes dreams are just dreams. Um, sometimes God is speaking in a dream. And sometimes you are speaking in a dream and you need to hear it for God's sake. Mm-hmm. So so sometimes it's it's a truly prophetic dream. But a lot of times it's your mind working out its insecurities and problems and difficulties and its cares and it's speaking to you at a time when you're not controlling it. And your your sort of your visceral intuitive self is screaming for you for you to listen to it, and um, God wants you to. And in that mm. sense, is a God give a dream, yeah, right. Um, if you and, and oftentimes you don't have to really interpret your dream, right? If your dream is full of the results of insecurities, you know that that's what your your intuitive mind is telling you, and you need to deal with that. Yeah. And sometimes I think so. So for example, God has used dreams a lot in my sanctification, mm. but usually in that third way. In that my dreams reveal my problems. Sure. When I, because I'm, I am what Jung called an excessively conscious person. Like I, I deal yeah. with my problems with my powerful consciousness. 
But what that means is I repress them, not mm-hmm. just suppress them. And I don't know. So the, I, I, I don't know what my problem is. In my dreams, when I can't consciously control them, they come out. Mm-hmm. And then I can say, oh, that's what's in there. And then I journal those. I write them down. And then I, and then all of a sudden I can see them in my heart, in my mind. I go, oh, yeah, well, there it is. Wow, that's really ugly. And God can then start to heal me because mm-hmm. now he's, remind, he's, he's allowed my own heart to tell me what's there. Yeah. Because I've been, um, I've been brutalizing the tenderest parts of myself. Yeah. In order to, to be able to be from out of being controlling, but you know, as a survival instinct in a way. Yeah. Well, and I think that I, I think that I've heard you say this before, but you can correct me if this is not to be attributed to you, but that like, just because it's the third option rather than the voice of God speaking to you in a dream doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's less spiritual or less of work of the Holy Spirit in you and in your life. And I yeah, think that I, it, I, mean, I think in most cases, God wants to reveal what's in you rather than what's going to happen to you. Yeah. What we want to hear from God is what's going to happen to us. What God wants us to know is right. what's really in us. Yeah. And so if you can get that straight, then you'll feel like all your dreams are prophetic. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move to the final question. This is not actually a question. This is more a comment that you can respond to. And it says this. Um, this is in relationship to Pastor Lloyd leaving. It says, I think it would be a good idea to form a diverse committee to interview candidates to replace the position Lloyd now holds. It is very important that High Point Church keeps a balance culturally as well as spiritually. There needs to be someone that can reach out to different ethnic groups in the church. Yeah. Um, so, so, okay, let me start with the second idea in that before we go to the operational idea, the procedural okay. one. So one is there needs to be someone who can reach out to different ethnic groups in the church and we need to be balanced culturally as well as spiritually. I agree with that. Okay. Now I do believe that it's relevant to candidates that we can acquire. Right. Yeah. Um, so if we just can't acquire one, then yeah, yeah, it, that is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the question is, is the best way to do that to seek to acquire somebody <clears throat> to form a diverse committee to interview candidates to replace Lloyd? Mm-hmm. Right? And that gets to the question of, is that what we're going to do? Are we just going to hire a replacement for Lloyd? Mm-hmm. As opposed to do some reorging and stuff like that. Um, my preference is to reorg because I also want to keep a balance in ages on the staff. And I, I also think that um, our younger cohorts are more diverse than our older ones. Mm-hmm. And so being able to hire out of the younger cohorts allows us more access to younger cohorts, which are more diverse, which allows us to access more diverse people. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if, if I if I just rehire for Lloyd, now I'm looking for somebody with 10 years experience who has a pastoral degree who like I'm just looking for somebody who's very rare yeah. because we're not making the person. We're just getting them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if I, we, I don't hire somebody to replace Lloyd, but I create three positions at the 20 year old level, you know, then we can we can look for people who are diverse and in that age cohort. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely debatable. Um, and I do agree with the assumptions in the question. Um, and getting a, a person of color, as people are called, I hate that phrase, but 
it's what people use, I guess, um, to get somebody who is not white in the higher level of the staff and like the executive level, I think is more meaningful than having three people who are not white in the non-executive level in certain ways. Um, and I'm real open to that, but I don't want to just go, if you, if you just go find somebody outside of a church or your church, um, the likelihood of chemistry problems are very significant. And the minute you start hiring the person I'm going to work with every day with a committee, who's never going to work with that person, it gets really dicey. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So yeah, we're, that's part of the process of us. To, we haven't made that decision about what we're going to do. Um, so that we may do exactly that. Um, I think we probably do need to have some people, some diversity in a group of people who look over what we're going to do. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's everything. Thank you to everyone who sent in oh, these questions. There was questions. a question about the pattern on my shirt. It's little trees. Oh, I missed that question somehow. Nick, what is the pattern on your shirt? Little trees. Little trees. Great. Um, thanks for everyone who wrote a question. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of this church. We're really grateful that we get to do the work that we get to do. And so. Amen. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.